Well, before we begin, I should say um, verses 27 through 30 most likely will be saved for the next time that we're studying Matthew, so sometime in the future. Um, just to mention that, if you get to the end of the sermon and think, hey, we still have three verses left, um, that's intentional. We'll, uh, we'll push those to next time, but wanted to mention that before we begin. Uh, when we look at tonight's passage, though, I do believe that we need to get a, a bit of a running start uh, from the previous context and revisit some of the themes from the last couple of weeks of Matthew. Now, some of you may remember from Matthew 18, uh, there was this strong emphasis on the work of community uh, as a group of people following Christ are willing to give each other strong exhortations, to go to each other one-on-one if necessary, or, or one-on-two, or, or even one-on before the whole, the whole church if necessary. And so there was this strong commitment to community there that we saw in Matthew 18. And then also at the end of Matthew 18, an, an, even, strong, an even stronger commitment to forgiveness. It is though you could say that the, the community of Christ in the Gospel of Matthew is one that is, is equally committed to exhorting each other to press on as it is committed to forgiving each other. And that was Matthew 18, and hopefully some of you remember that. And then Matthew 19, the, the, the first half, that, things that I emphasized last week, Jesus gave us a teaching um, about marriage and divorce and children and singleness. And, and what I emphasize is that he gives that teaching from the shadow of the cross. That was the way I framed it. And I, I articulated it that way because he is moving toward Jerusalem. Matthew 19 begins by telling us that he enters Judea, which is the region, of course, where Jerusalem is. Now, this trajectory of Jesus going from Galilee into Judea and then on his way to Jerusalem presses on us the fact that the cross which Jesus had to die upon for the sins of his church, the cross makes us humble. When we think about ethics being given from the shadow of the cross, it infuses our minds with humility if we rightly appropriate what the cross means, namely that we needed someone to die for our sins. But at the same time, the cross also reminds us of the resurrection power which which God gives us access to by the Holy Spirit. By being joined to the resurrected Christ, we gain access to the resurrection power of the Holy Spirit. So looking at last week's topics, if you are in a marriage that is struggling and lacking all joy, Jesus says that apart from adultery or abandonment, you should not seek divorce. This was last week's sermon. How do you pursue this incredibly difficult ethic that the disciples said no one should be getting married then if that's true, but how how do we pursue this incredibly challenging and high bar by letting the cross humble you and the resurrection empower you? See, it's important that the ethics of the kingdom come in the shadow of the cross and the resurrection because through the cross and the resurrection, we see that our sin... The sin that we bring into marriages, if you're married, our sin required the death of Jesus. But at the same time, by receiving this ethic in the shadow of the cross, we see that our sin has been conquered by the death of Jesus. So when we get this running start, as I said, into the second half of Matthew 19, we see that in the context of community, A community committed to both strong exhortation towards each other, but also to forgiveness. And when we see that the cross and the resurrection can empower us to follow Jesus, then we see that when he gives us these hard teachings about marriage, he is not giving them and then walking away, but rather he is giving them as he walks to the cross. 
so that when we receive them, we hear them framed as not isolated ethics, but rather ethics given with the power of the resurrection coming beside them. Well, this is last week, of course, but the same is true of singleness, which we meditated on last week. The cross shows us that Jesus knows our sorrows and our loneliness. Jesus, through his walk to the cross, knows what it is like for anyone who is called to a life of, of, of celibacy or being a eunuch, as it talked about in last week's passage, but really essentially a life of singleness. Jesus both shows us that he is empathetic and sympathetic to that path, but also shows us that we have power to walk that path with joy and purpose because he says it is for the kingdom of Christ that people have this calling. I don't bring this up to diminish the difficulty of these exhortations, these exhortations from last week, but instead to point us to the path of the cross, the one that Jesus walked and the one that we can see he actually wants us to apply to our lives. See, he wants, to apply, he wants us to apply the cross and the resurrection, not just to our songs or our prayers or our sermons, though he does want us to apply it to that, of course, but he wants it to be applied to the hardest aspects of our life. That's what I've been meditating on this week. He wants us to apply the cross and the resurrection to the very hardest parts of our life. That's the main point of this section of Matthew. When Peter resisted this logic, you might remember Matthew 16, Jesus replied when Peter resisted this type of thinking. He said, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Though some, of course, are martyred for their witness to Christ, I don't believe Jesus means that we should all literally find Roman crosses to die on. No, that's not the main point of that passage there in Matthew 16. No, instead, he means we should apply the cross and the resurrection to every facet of our lives. That's what he means when he says, take up your cross and follow me. He is on the path to Jerusalem to die and rise again. And he wants us, those who are going to follow him, if you consider yourself a follower of Jesus Christ, he wants you to apply the cross and the resurrection to the hardest parts of your life. Hopefully you can see the very practical nature of the kingdom ethics that are are constructed in the shadow of the cross. I bring it up to, to give us a framework to, to use last week's example, to give us a framework for tonight's passage, which moves on from the topic of family dynamics, you might say, marriage or singleness or, or children or divorce, family dynamics, and instead focuses on, on money. And not just money, but the cruel master that money can be. Another painfully difficult topic for some of us, the reality of money whether it's a cruel master that has a grip on our hearts or whether it's something we look at and think, if only I had some. Whatever it is, money is such a difficult topic. And Jesus placing it in this section of his gospel, this section of his teaching, frames it in light of the cross and the resurrection. And the reason we know that is if you look down at at verse 30, he he says as he concludes this section, 
But many who are first will be last, and the last will be first. Well, this is, of course, what happens to Jesus at the cross and the resurrection. He is judged guilty. He is considered the last in that moment. He is considered the one who is wrong. And then what happens? The last becomes first. He raises again. He becomes the firstborn of the new creation. And then again in chapter 20, just one section later, you don't need to turn there, but Jesus repeats the saying again as he concludes this little section. He says, the last will be first and the first will be last. Matthew 20, 16. You can see he has the kingdom ethic on his mind. That is, the inverted nature of the kingdom of God. The last will be first and the first will be last. Or or as he has said before, the kingdom of heaven belongs to those who are like little children. Everything about Jesus' kingdom is completely different from the kingdom of this world. And then to show how this kingdom ethic breaks into the fallen world, we can see that he's repeated three times this phrase, I must go to Jerusalem to suffer, to die, and to rise again. He repeats it again at the end of this teaching in 2018 and 19. He says he's going to Jerusalem. He'll be delivered over. He'll be mocked. He'll be flogged and crucified. And he will rise on the third day. The entire section that we're in right now in the Gospel of Matthew is about kingdom ethics. Kingdom ethics constructed in the shadow of the cross and the resurrection. A kingdom which Jesus wants to know Jesus wants us to know a kingdom in which the last will be first. A kingdom filled with those who are like little children. A kingdom in which the king's coronation takes place by crucifixion. If you want to live in the kingdom of heaven, you want to work out the details of your life, you want to try and be a Christian. If you want to live under God's reign, you have to do your ethics in the shadow of the cross. I was incredibly convinced of this the more I meditated on it this week. And I wanted to bring that up as we start our section for tonight. Because I believe it's the framework which helps us understand what is on Jesus' heart during these chapters in Matthew. Where he has predicted that he's going to the cross But he is not there yet. He gives a strong ethical teaching. Tonight's is focused on money. And money, uh, this section can be broken into two parts. 16 through 22 shows us the triumph of greed over grace. 16 through 22, the, the triumph of greed over grace. And then 23 through 26 shows us the triumph of grace over greed. That's how this passage is framed. Well, to, to understand this first section, 16 through 22, how greed triumphs over grace, we need to first do a study of this rich young man who approaches Jesus. He's the main character of this story, and he is one of the most intriguing figures, I would say, in all of the Gospels. From Matthew, we learn that he is a wealthy young man. That's what we learn as the story unfolds. A wealthy young man. But from Luke, Luke tells the story as well, but he includes that he is also a ruler. 
Now, because he is young, he's probably not a ruler of the synagogue. They were often older. You think the word elder, right? But he is a ruler, and so he is probably some sort of civic ruler. You might think of him as a a wealthy, young politician. Now, not only that, we learn from our study tonight that he is extremely virtuous, extremely moral, you might say. After Jesus essentially tells him to follow the second half of the Ten Commandments, he gives him the second half in verses 18, 19. He says, all these I have kept. That means he hasn't killed anyone. He hasn't committed adultery. He hasn't stolen anything. He hasn't lied. He hasn't dishonored his parents. He has loved his neighbor as himself. This is a truly moral person in some sense of the word. So in all of this, this is a man who you might say has his whole life together. Everything's going well for this man. He's wealthy. Remember, he's the the rich. He's young. He's got civic power. That means he's respected. And he's moral, to top it off. He's not a corrupt politician. But all of this makes it all the more curious, all the more curious that he comes up to Jesus at all. You would think that someone with this pedigree would not need the advice of of Jesus, a carpenter who has a second career as a poor, wandering teacher with crowds of sick people around him. Crowds of people who need healing. Crowds of desperate people around him. This This is not typically the people that this man probably hung out with. But what we see from this background is that no matter how put together your life is, remember he had power, wealth, morality. No matter how put together your life is, you can still be left unsatisfied. Your conscience can still be uneasy. You can still lack peace. Even if all of the things that society says, if you just have these, you'll be happy. Even if you have those, as this man did, You can still need to come to somebody and ask them a hard question. The reason is, as Ecclesiastes 3.11 tells us, God has put eternity into man's hearts. It's a part of our makeup to want to know something eternal, to want to know something bigger than what we can see. And because of that, because this man has eternity in his heart, because his heart is restless, As Augustine would say, because of that, he approaches Jesus and he asks a very complicated question. If you look at verse 16, he says, teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? You can see eternity has been put into his heart. Well, Jesus' response challenges the premise of his question. He says, why do you ask me about what is good? There is only one who is good. This is Jesus' response. Why do you ask me about what is good? There is only one. Who is good? Now, Jesus is either saying, this is a very complicated verse. Jesus is either saying, only God is good. Are you asking me about good works because you think I am God? That's one way to interpret Jesus' question. Are you asking me about good works because you think I am God? That's one way. Or, Only God is good. Are you suggesting there is some task you can do that is even more good than the goodness of God? You're asking for a good task? God is good. Are you thinking you can do something beyond what he has already given us in his law? 
Those are the two probably best options on the table for this interpretation, are the the ones that I think are most persuasive. And most likely, this man thought the second option. He thought that he could do a task even greater than the goodness outlined in the law. The reason we know that is based on the next verses. After Jesus tells him to obey the commands to enter life, the man asks, which ones? Now here we start to see how confident this man is in himself. Which ones? And while confidence and self-esteem are are considered a, a virtue often in most settings in American life, it can also quickly become a curse. Augustine says at one point before his conversion, I was full of self-esteem, which was a punishment of my own making. Have you ever thought of self-esteem as a punishment of your own making? That's what this man is experiencing. The punishment of self-esteem leads him to ask, which ones to Jesus? Jesus lists basically the entire second half of the Ten Commandments, and he responds, I have kept them all. Instead of coming to Jesus like a little child, as he just said must be the case, if you're going to enter the kingdom of heaven, this man is coming full of confidence in himself and his ability to obey God's law. So he basically repeats his opening question again. What more do I lack? The goodness of God clearly, clearly has not penetrated this man's heart. He is focused on his own good deeds. He is suffering from a horrible case of self-esteem, a punishment of his own making. Jesus tells him to sell everything he has, to give it to the poor, and then you'll have treasure in heaven. You'll be perfect. Come follow me. Jesus is finally answering the greedy man's original question. What good deed must I do to have eternal life? Jesus answers that. The answer is not take a vow of poverty. If that were all that was required of us, if that was all that was required of this man to sell all of your things as if it were the 11th commandment that Moses forgot to bring down from Mount Sinai or something, if that were the case, then every time anyone approached Jesus in all of the Gospels, the answer would always be the same. Take a vow of poverty. Take a vow of poverty. You're sick? Take a vow of poverty. Something's wrong? Take a vow of poverty. If that's all you needed to do to inherit eternal life, then that's all Jesus would have ever said. And follow me. Instead, instead, this is the first time someone gets told to sell all their things. What is repeated throughout the Gospels, however, is the call to follow Christ. Uh, Matthew 4.19, early on, when he's calling the disciples, he says to them, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Matthew 8.22 A man wants to go back and bury his father, and and Jesus says, follow me. Let the dead bury their own dead. Matthew 9, 9, when he's talking to, to Matthew, the tax collector, sitting at his tax booth, what does he say to him? He says, follow me. And then, of course, the passage we've already meditated on, Matthew 16, 24, Jesus tells his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Anyone who wants eternal life must follow Christ. That's the import of these verses. Everyone who wants eternal life must take up their cross 
and follow him. Or as Jesus said it at the beginning of his ministry, framing it around the kingdom, he says, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Another way of saying take up your cross is saying repent. Another way of saying, demonstra- another way of saying it is demonstrate faith like a little child. Another way of saying it is be willing to be last so that you might be first. There's lots of ways to talk about what must be true of your heart if you're going to actually follow Jesus. But clearly, the man with great self-esteem demonstrated the opposite approach of a little child. The man was in nearly every sense of the word the first in the world. And in that way, he would be last in the kingdom of God. So Jesus, Jesus does the most gracious thing he can do for this man. He attacks his idol. He works to deconstruct the good thing that this man has made an ultimate thing, as one pastor has described, idolatry. The reason this man was unsatisfied, the reason he had everything the world could offer and yet was still lying awake in bed at night probably, is because he, hadn't, he didn't have everything, because he had everything in the world, but he didn't have God. That's why Jesus told him only God is good. He was looking for some other way to access goodness. And for him, the easiest way was to find another rule to follow. See, this guy is good at rules. He's followed them all. He's followed all the rules. So what does he think? I'm wrestling internally. I want to access eternal life. What's the way to get it? Oh, I know. Another rule. I'll go talk to this teacher and see if he can tell me another rule to access eternal life. A good rule. He asked Jesus to add something beyond God's way that is through the commandments. To know God, of course. To trust him and to obey his commandments. So he comes to Jesus and asks for a good rule that he can follow in order to appease his conscience. But Jesus is too kind for that. He's too kind to give this man what he asked for. And he's also too honest. You know, Karl Marx says religion is the opiate of the masses. And if he's talking about rule following in order to make yourself think you are good deep down, deep down inside, then, then maybe Marx was right. Rule following that makes you feel good enough to sleep is an opiate. But clearly, Jesus is not interested in this type of religion. Jesus clearly wants something better for this man. Jesus clearly wants something far better, not just for this man, but for all of us. Something better than a set of rules which we think will appease our conscience, but won't. He had done them all. If he gave him another rule, the man would would do those for a while, and then he would still feel uneasy. That's why Jesus says in Matthew 11, Come to me. That's why he promises his followers Each of us who follow him, he promises you, I will be with you always, even to the end of the age. That's why his name is Emmanuel, God with us. Jesus wants something better for the man than simply another rule for him to follow to feel temporarily better in his soul about his lack of eternity. You see what this interaction tells us about Jesus? He won't let you chase an idol all the way to death. 
If you come to him for eternal life, which is what this man did, if you come to him for eternal life, he will tell you how to find it. And the answer is simple. Take up your cross and follow me. Jesus makes that a very concrete endeavor. He reorients the man's ethical framework by forcing him to crucify the God he worships. He's forcing him to crucify the God that is named money. Now, is money wrong? No. But in Matthew 6, 24, Jesus says, No one can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Jesus is reorienting this man's ethics. How he uses his money. He's reorienting this man's ethics by forcing him to crucify the God he worships. Namely, money. He's telling the man to sell all his things, which will demonstrate true devotion to Christ. Which will enable him to actually achieve perfection. That is not sinlessness, but rather a wholehearted devotion to Jesus. By selling all his things, he will enter life, which comes from Christ. These are all the things Jesus uses to describe what it would be like if he actually sells all his things. And to top it off, he will have treasure in heaven. This is massively gracious. Eternal life, eternal treasure, and perfection. All things this man would gain by following Christ. A wholehearted devotion is what Jesus asked for when he says, take up your cross and follow me. He won't let you feign interest in him on your own terms. If you think, well, this is the thing I'm typically good at. I'll go ask Jesus if I could use that strength to access him. That's what this man does. But Jesus is too kind for that. He's too compassionate to you to let something like money, as was the case in this man, be a cruel master over you to enslave you. Instead, as we follow him, that's the operative language, following him, as we follow him, he will take our half-hearted obedience If that's all we offer, he will take our half-hearted obedience and slowly bring the parts of us that are dead to life. That's what he promises when he says, anyone who will come after me must take up his cross and follow me. For whoever loses his life will find it. But unfortunately, at least in the encounter in tonight's passage, greed triumphs over grace. The master of money has too strong a grip on this man's heart. Instead of giving all his money to the poor as a sign of his repentance, this man goes away sorrowful. He doesn't move towards Jesus. As Jesus is always telling people, come to me, follow me. My name is Emmanuel, that is the one who is with you. I promise to be with you. Where two or more are gathered, there I am with you. But he doesn't move toward Jesus. He moves away from him. Why does he move away from him? Look at verse 22. He was really wealthy. He had a lot of money. He had great material possessions. 
and those material possessions were unsatisfying. Therefore, he craved something eternal because God had put eternity in his heart. But this idol was powerful, and it was cruel, and had a deep hold on his heart. So he leaves away from Jesus. How sorrowful. He didn't leave thinking, no thanks, but at least I still have my money. The smile on his face, joy in his heart, no. He walked away sorrowful. His cruel master won again. Greed triumphed over grace in this man's life. Should you sell all your things? I think that should be extremely rare, if ever the case. What is more important, I believe, if we, if we actually let Jesus' intent press in on our hearts, what is more important is asking what you need to remove from your life that hinders you from following Jesus Christ. That's the point of this interaction with this rich young ruler. We must remove the things from our life that, hinders us, that hinder us from following Christ. And when you do your ethics in the shadow of the cross, you must always remember that this crucifixion that has to happen for these false gods, this mammon for this man, or whatever it is for each of us, this crucifixion that must take place if we're going to take up our cross, we must remember that what comes on the end of crucifixion is resurrection. He never asks you to give up more than what he will give in return. Sacrifices for Christ always result, always result in his followers becoming more and more alive. If you would come after me, take up your cross. And what is the promise? Within you will have life. You must follow him if you're going to access resurrection life. You see, this is not a call to give more. That's not the point of this passage. This is a warning about worshiping created things, a created thing like money. Uh, Jesus says the way to stop worshiping money and being left unsatisfied as you leave the altar of your bank account, the way to, to, to start chipping away at that, that, that death because you're worshiping a dead thing, the way to start chipping away at that is to give away your money. Let me not soften the clear import of his teaching here. The way for this man to crucify that master, that that cruel master of money, the way for him to to chip away at it was to give away all of his things. But for for those of you who might say, yeah, I think money has a a mastery over me. Maybe you need to, to call Enrique, our mercy minister. And you need to ask him some of the latest stories from the way that he is leading a team of people to bring mercy to people in need in our city. He will tell you what his ministry is about, and I promise you will be excited after you finish talking to him. And it will move your heart because the vision of what he's doing with his team, by God's grace, will enliven you, and it will give you an idea about how you might want to use your resources so that they are not a master over you. And I am saying that practically you should email Enrique. 
And you should ask him what's going on with the mercy ministry. And then you should consider how the Lord might be calling you to give to the poor. Again, Jesus is not telling everyone to take a vow of poverty. But he is saying the way that you attack the God of money that is a cruel master is by giving away your money. We can't get around that that's the import of his teaching. Now, if you're thinking, Gavin, that is so hard. My money has such a tight grip on me. If you're being honest, and you're thinking, my money has such a tight grip on me, if that's where you're sitting right now, let's look at the second half of our passage. How grace triumphs over greed. It's the second half of our passage. How grace triumphs over greed. If you're thinking, man, you just gave us a terribly difficult task. Let's look now at how grace triumphs over greed so that you might be strengthened. Remember, you might become more and more alive. You might access the resurrection power that is yours by taking up your cross. Remember the framework. We must do our kingdom ethics about marriage or family or divorce or singleness or children or money. We must do them in the shadow of the cross and the resurrection because that's the only way we'll be able to actually follow the crucified and resurrected king. And he wants us explicitly to have the cross and the resurrection in our minds and in our hearts when we try and follow the terribly difficult ethics that he puts forward. You notice every time he puts forward these ethics, the disciples are like flabbergasted. You can't be serious, Jesus. That's way too difficult. Talking about marriage. Here, it's way too difficult, they say. But when we are actually thinking about the cross and the resurrection and our sin is being crucified as we continue to take up our cross and we're humbled. And then we remember that resurrection life is offered to us by the Holy Spirit because we have been united to Christ. Then these ethics become something that we say to Jesus, okay, um, please give me grace sufficient to follow you today. Because grace triumphs over greed. It's what this man was suffering from. So let's see how grace triumphs over greed. First, 23 through 25. You must honestly diagnose the problem. The first step in grace triumphing over greed is an honest recognition of the need for grace. Greed or being enslaved by money, those are two sides of the same coin. No pun intended. Greed doesn't just go away. Wealth makes it incredibly difficult to feel your dependence on God. Jesus talks about the third soil, the one who has the thorns growing up around the word of God. Those thorns, those weeds, are the deceitfulness of riches. We can be deceived by resources that God has given us to steward. That's how he wants us to think about money in light of the cross and the resurrection and his kingdom that we get to be a part of by stewarding his resources faithfully and humbly. But greed, it doesn't just go away. There has to be an honest diagnosis. And Jesus gives us an incredibly sobering diagnosis when he says, In 24, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Now, yes, there's hyperbole here, undoubtedly. 
But the point is clear. It's basically impossible. Well, the disciples respond. As I said, they're, they're, they're astonished at Jesus' Jesus's standard for his kingdom. They're astonished. Who then can be saved? The appropriate question. They've done an honest diagnosis. When you look at the greed in your heart or the enslavement of money over you, who then can be saved? Can I be saved in light of this situation is an appropriate response. But Jesus matches that and he responds by telling them that they need God's intervention of grace. He looks at them. You notice that he looks at his disciples when they give this response. They're astonished. He focuses in on them and he says, with man, this is impossible. You can see why I call this an honest diagnosis. If you think you're just going to work hard to get yourself out of your addiction to having money or work hard to get yourself away from being greedy or being enslaved by money, however you think about it in your heart, Jesus is agreeing with you in that it is hard. It is, in fact, impossible. But with God, all things are possible, Jesus said. If you are wealthy and you resonate with the rich young ruler, if you think you can do this on your own, this will undoubtedly discourage you, even crush you. You will walk away tonight sorrowful as the man was. But if you see that it is possible for God, by his grace, to release your grip on money, then you should be encouraged You should be encouraged that the one who is good, that is the one who is generous to his creation, can save you from your worship of money. So what must you do? Jesus tells the man and he tells us, come to Jesus Christ. Come, follow him. And as you come with some sense of uneasiness in your heart, undoubtedly, and you ask him what you should do about it, as the rich young ruler did, what should I do? (laughs) And he asks you, why do you ask me about what is good? Why are you looking for another good rule? Why do you ask me about what is good? Respond. Respond with your prayers and in your hearts and in your community of people that you trust who you're willing to let bear this burden of greed with you. Respond by saying, because you are good. Because you are good. That's how that man should have responded. Why do you ask me about a good law. The man should have said, I see all these people around, you're healing them. I wake up in the middle of the night anxious about money, even though I have a ton of it. That's what this man is going through. That's my guess, I should say. But that's why he's willing to come, even though he's a ruler, even though he's, he's wealthy, even though he's respected because of his morality, most likely. He should have said to Jesus when he asked this question, because you are good. That's what we should say when we approach Jesus and he says, why why do you ask me about a good rule? Because you are good. And as Kevin DeYoung says, God's goodness is the opposite of harshness and cruelty. To experience divine goodness is to enjoy the sweetness, the friendliness the benevolence, and the generosity of God. It's no surprise that this man who is paralyzed by greed and sorrowful because of it 
is talking about God's goodness. It's no surprise. Because God's goodness is the opposite of cruelty. It is generosity. It is benevolence. It is friendliness. Whereas money, money is a cruel master. It's a master which enslaves people. But in Jesus, we experience the opposite of harshness and cruelty. In Jesus, we experience the friendliness, the benevolence, and the generosity of God. The reason you experience that when you come to Jesus Christ is because he is God. Why do you ask me about a good commandment? Because you are good and because you are God. That's the answer that when that question is asked to us, On this side of the resurrection, we respond in faith saying, because you are good, that means you are not just a demonstration of the benevolence of God. You are in flesh the benevolence of God. That's how we should respond when we come to Jesus struggling with money, not sure about what to do, about our craving for more, or the way we're enslaved by what we do have. If we do our ethics in the shadow of the cross, we slowly see the goodness of God loosen the grip that this cruel master can have on us. So take your cues about financial ethics from Jesus as he travels to the cross and then follow him on that path. For at the cross and only at the cross does one experience what this man was looking for? Eternal life. At the cross, and only the cross and the resurrection, does one experience what this rich, young, really moral ruler was looking for? Eternal life. Let's follow him there until he returns, but in the great confidence that he is with us today. Amen.